It's been a long time since we've done a, a Bioshock recording with Bruce Darrow. You have previously been a, a punctuation in the in the Bioshock recordings. I'm sorry, I need to call you Dr. Bruce Damon now. <laughs> My wife and I have, have done the, the spiritual trek down Bear Creek Road, uh, and we, we, are at, uh, we are at the farm here with Bruce. Bruce, I know you have a, a current book project, but for folks who may be just caught up associated with the chemo grid, can you take us from the chemo grid to where you are currently, or the start of the chemo grid in terms of assembling all the plastic bits and pieces to where you are currently? What, what has gone on in the past, I don't know, year or so? Well, I um, completed, we completed all the Evo grid simulations, and the Evo grid was an all-computer, uh, complete silicon-based, if you say almost like an emergence system where we use Gromax molecular dynamics, like thousands or hundreds of thousands of those instances, small volume chemical simulations running, and then search and selection to hill climb through chemical space to get the highest performing experiment had 189 molecules formed out of a thousand atoms. And they were all different types of organic molecules, pretty much. And so that, that, uh, was experiment number six, and it occurred on April 15th of 2011, where we saw the staircasing. So the, the magic formula, or the magic uh, sort of journey pathway to find is a staircasing effect, where you have a bunch of complex molecules forming in, say, hundreds of experiments. They can't move it to any higher maxima, so you you pick randomly from them wiggle the parameters and generate hundreds of new experiments and then see if they manage to get to a higher maximum. And by using a technique called stochastic hill climbing, we we found the doorway through. And so literally by the end of experiment number six, which ran on 30 cores for for two and a half, three months, we had this 189 molecular product. We had sequestered about half of the molecular of the atomic population into into molecules so that that was good enough to defend a phd with so a question that i got at the a life conference and apologies that i can't remember which of the many folk who came up to me associated with these recordings but someone did ask me if the evo grid was to continue if we were to take exactly what you did and just kind of progress on with it with potentially more cores potentially faster computing potentially even removing the chemistry simulation, putting a new chemistry simulation in. Do you think that you would see a progression, maybe not as as steep as you initially saw, but do you see that there was enough in the Evo grid that if there was a devoted team that was looking at it continuing on, that it would get more results, more productive results, basically, in the long term? I I concluded I was actually sitting uh, at the Origins 2011 conference, which was sort of the the Origin of Life mega conference in Montpellier, France. I was sitting on a park bench depressed because I had worked out in my head that we were four orders of magnitude short Mm. of the computing power needed to do even basic Origin of Life experiments in terms of the volume you need to simulate and the number of molecular products and the time frames. But the argument was made, and certainly I'm sympathetic to this, that that kind of computing is probably five to ten years away. And if you look at the nature of Gromax and replace Gromax with something that's considerably more optimized for an Evo grid-like space, 
then that comes down in time as well. I mean, I think the computer ceiling that you would need to see, the computational ceiling that you would need to see, would need to be 10 to 15 orders of magnitude to eliminate a human lifetime associated mm-hmm. with just the progressive computing that we've seen. And I think certainly my own discussion and the questions that came to me through the Artificial Life Conference related to replacing Gromax in particular, but also looking at a vastly more distribution in the Evo Group model. I think there was certainly a narrative which was recorded through these podcasts associated with the hope of the Evo Grid. And I think as this audio went out to tens, hundreds of people, it stuck with the number in the community that this, mm. they still, irrespective of your doubts, have a sense that this is still a potential way. And I think in terms of the kind of meta-evo grid, the notion of this framework that has an internal chemistry engine the state reproducing um, you know, multiple potential future states, all these kind of things... The blueprint of the Evo grid still is relatively robust for expanding computation. Mm-hmm. And I think the general sense, I mean, although maybe I'm, I'm kind of getting the community as a kind of focal point associated with this topic, but I think there seemed to be an underlying sense that the co- computation still held some potential. And I think particularly your uh, discussion at Contact, and unfortunately we don't have the, the day following audio that you recorded with, uh, with Randall Hayes, but I think there are still some optimists out there in the community associated with this bottle. Um, to those folk, those folk, well, <laughs> what would you like to say? I, I sat on this park bench with another researcher, and it occurred to me, as, as I said, you know, in my lifetime, I'm not going to see uh, computers crack the origin of life. Emergent phenomena, molecularly modeled so they can be reproduced in the lab. And then it occurred to me, replace the the digital simulation of chemistry with chemistry and i actually had uh, this strange vision of inflating party balloons where you could then squirt a sample uh, experimental solution use the positive pressure of the balloon to actually then resample back out and uh, do thousands hundreds thousands millions of small chemical experiments and then in a flash it was my head to say, I said, wait a minute, if the molecules simulate themselves and you have a parallel computing engine running that is using artificial life techniques, it's using basically genetic algorithms because it's doing, it will, it will watch these experiments in, in a vision system or a mass spec or a combination of things and, and grade them and weight them and then st- restart new experiments. You could flush the system out and start a thousand new ex- chemical. You let the chemicals simulate themselves. So that's the chemo grid. That's and the chemo in addition, grid. there were a number of questions associated with the chemo grid. But returning just perhaps slightly to the Evo grid idea, for folks who are interested in kind of continuing on with the Evo grid that maybe are not as pessimistic I, as I you I would are. say to them, use y- your idea of chemical automata. Because doing... Basically, using a dissipative dynamic system like Gromax, using trying to model real molecular dynamics, it's dissipative dynamics. So, the vast majority of things that are going on are molecule to molecule contacts that don't do anything, mm-hmm. and that's the frustration of computer science people. That to simulate nature, you need to simulate a vast amount of no ops, mm-hmm. basically. 
random encounters, heat moving through the system, etc., etc. So very little happens, like Will Wright said, very mm-hmm. little happens for a very long period of time. But if you want to use the Evil Grid's search and selection hill climbing uh, technique, do it with chemical automata that where interactions have a higher meaning, where, you know, it, it's almost like the, the Wolfram approach where... Um, an encounter between two things does produce something. So the idea of event-based versus time-based. Exactly. So you take the event scale rather than the time scale and actually look at the event interaction. So, so for example, here would be a very good... If you could use chemical automata that have high meaning in their interaction, in their events, to, to simulate the action of lipids. Lipid chemistry is sort of, I think, where it's happening. Having hung out with Dave Deemer for a mm-hmm. couple of years, now I'm a convert to lipid chemistry. But l- the behavior of lipid uh, is so fascinating. It's so freaky. It's, it's. I mean, people have to understand, your cells are made of lipids, you know, phospholipids. They, they basically nestle together with their heads and tails, you know, the tails together, the heads facing outward, and they ripple and they flip. They flip in orientation, and they let things through the membrane. They're not chemically bonded. This is an affinity, a molecular affinity. So membranes have permeability, and permeability, and it's permeability that is adjustable. The membrane can also grow by adding more lipid. It's it's one of the weirdest phenomena in the universe, and it's so weird that, that it can support the emergence of a living system. And it's for free. This is not a biological system. This is a natural system. <laughs> and the Earth was populated by lipid from incoming meteorites. This is what Dave Emer showed in the 80s when they, they sampled the Murchison meteorite and put it in solution. There were lipid uh, membranes forming. So lipid chemistry and can be modeled with computers. You don't have to model every single atom and its behavior. You can model... All kinds of vesicle formation, all kinds of permeability. Um, also, you can model uh, uh, polymerases, you know, polymer chemistry, because you don't have to do everything. You just model the entire polymer and things like replicases. Um, so all of that could be done extremely effectively with a traditional all-silicon evil grid. And then what you do is is you you marry that model to a real chemo grid and say we've observed the formation of of polymers inside vesicles that then regulate the growth of the vesicle which is an important result in simulation can we now build the chemical experiment and compare it to our model all the way up and find out how far off we are so let's talk about the chemo grid with the view that the folks listening in have heard the description that you've given basically in our prior recording and also in this recording one of the interesting things that happened and thankfully it was recorded and and put out in a podcast was at my uh, artificial life and industry talk Mm. because we had wet artificial life folk there and i talked a little bit about the chemo grid in terms of the hobbyist wet artificial life community and initially and this was perfectly captured in the audio there was a little bit of skepticism but then I explained the, the kind of broader principles of the chemo grid very much in traditional artificial life terms associated with how the experiments would go and how things would be selected and, and how it would progress accordingly. 
And then I think they began to understand that this was a kind of hobbyist with artificial life. Mm -hmm. So in terms of your own thinking of the chemo grid, can you frame it in wet artificial life terms? If you could, and there's a, there's a high school science teacher building, uh, he's the first person who's, he's writing, also writing for the book, and he's building uh, a chemo grid genesis engine experiment in, in his basement in Illinois. But what he's doing is he's saying it's, it's really, you, you want to model an analog of the real world. So based on what Dave Deemers guided him, he said, take a rock sample, a sample of volcanic rock, drill a hole in it, have a hot water squirt up through that, but also make come into contact with the bits of the volcanic rock, spray out onto little trays that are moving. And on those little trays are other rock samples. They move around, they, they click around, there could be, you know, 50 of them or whatever number. They dry but then they get re-impugned with, with wet, hot rock, which has also come through this volcanic pipe. And then what you do is after, you know, hour, minutes, hours, or days, you, you scrape off those samples and you put it under, or you, if you're really good, you've got a robotic system to automatically look at them. And you see how many, you know, amino acid chains have formed, how many... Uh, how much lipid chemistry has occurred, and you're modeling, you're modeling the geyser environments that are so, there, there a real potential for the or, early origin of life. So, in terms of contamination, because I think this was my concern when we first talked, and I tried to explain this at the artificial life and industry discussion as well, associated with I think used the term, um, use some large British ship. Yes. to represent the, the chemistry, the, the organics that we see, mm. and looking underneath that. So really eliminating the top noise band and perhaps the bottom noise band and looking at a kind of nutritious central layer. But can you talk a little bit about contamination in the system? And if you have, for example, if you're doing this, I've, I've been into some basements in Illinois in recent times, right. and um, the quality of the organics in those kind of environments, just at the air alone, is, is pretty good. Dave actually believes ordinary household bleach mm -hmm. uh, will really knock out pretty much. Wow. And heating. Mm. Uh, the, the, that, the, the water, and of course there are extremophiles, but the, the bleaching of the environment will really, really... Uh, knock out and you use an ordinary enclosure like a an aquarium a sealed aquarium mm. and he believes that what you're looking for anyway you know clearly if you saw a, a bacterium that, that looks like the complexity of the queen mary compared <laughs> to a rubber ducky you would just discount that and i was also asking what about you know leftover biological stuff and you can't i mean nobody's going to really make an analog of the early earth because we just don't know the atmospheric content. We don't know anything. You know, we, we know a little, but we can make guesses. But the, So his, his chemo grid is very much, you know, the mineral surfaces, etc., etc. But there are ways to do chemo grids with microfluidics. You can do it with a glassware. We built a system last summer that was glassware, and it was very... Uh, we built uh, lucite panels with really simple, small test tubes. So the idea is, in some of these chemo grids, is, is closed loop. So you have the test tube, or you even have a beaker flask, and you put a stopper in the end, and you, the stopper has two ports in it, and you put 
basically you snap off pipettes, shove them in there. It actually creates a pretty good seal. And mm -hmm. then you put your your glass tube, your plastic tubing through, and you can pressurize the system. You can rock the experiment back and forth. You can heat it from below. You can do all these really, you know, with you can use an Arduino to control a whole mm -hmm. shelf of mm -hmm. these things that are rocking back and forth. Some of them are in darkness. Some of them are, mm -hmm. etc. And then when you want to sample, what you do is you have a stopcock that you could turn automatically or by hand. And as soon as you turn it, it sucks a, a, a basically a bunch of the fluid out of one of these test tubes down into a uh, an observing area where you could actually look at you could look at vessels that vesicles mm -hmm. that were formed and then you turn the stopcock you, you turn the pool pump the, the aquarium pump the other way and it will pull the sample back in completely pull it back in mm -hmm. so you don't denude your samples but in terms of the pump the pump is going to be your greatest contaminant in that kind of environment well if, as long as the air i mean it's the, it's a it's a closed system so there's a fixed amount of air in it mm -hmm. and uh, the the pump is basically squeezing a diaphragm of existing air, mm -hmm. so there's actually it's completely closed. Oh, okay. So the pump doesn't introduce anything into. Doesn't of... introduce anything. Okay. It's just squeezing this diaphragm. So for cheap, you know, this is Maker Fair mm -hmm. kind of. For cheap, you can even do this with glassware. Microfluidics is the next step where you you know this is what Steen mm -hmm. and Rasmussen and the, the lab wants to do with their life cycle. Um, Microfluidics is basically, you know, taking silicon chip technology and making thousands, and you know, in medical testing, they're doing these things for, you you can have a you can pinprick your 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 skin to do a blood test, and you know, connected to this prick uh, is is a chip that is going to do the blood test, and it's got a USB port on it, and you plug it into the computer, and it's already done the the test, or it's cholesterol mm -hmm, mm -hmm. PSA test or mm -hmm. something. So there's tiny labs on a chip. There's a third, uh, there's, a, there's a next method is the 96 well plate technique. And this is from Affymetrics. And this is from the Human Genome Project, mm -hmm. where you have uh, an aluminum plate or a glass plate with small wells carved in it. And such a system has been built at NASA Ames for astrobiology. It was built at UC Santa Cruz, mm -hmm. and it's being operated. And they literally rotate this plate around and, dribble individual little wells full of, in this case it's a lipid polymerase experiment, and then they dry them out with a drying station, and then the oh. little wells continue along, and they're, they're rehydrated, and mm. then they go. And so that's another Genesis engine. That's another chemo grid. There's a fourth model, and this is, comes from Dave Deemer again. The fourth model for the chemo grid is using nature's own containers. So instead of glassware well plates or little channels in silicon chips what you can do is if if you start in the morning with with egg yolk you can do a set a series of processes that will pull out you know a a, a basically a, a little pile of powder white powder which is phospholipid out of that egg yolk and then you if you take a pinch of that, I mean, you're talking a gram, mm -hmm. throw that into into a solution, into water, it will form billions of small containers, lipid containers. There's so much lipid. Mm. So what you do is you say, all right, well, let's, let's use... I formed one trillion containers, some of which may have contents in them, some of which don't. What I can do is dry that whole system out, the containers flatten out and become a multi-lamellar, multi-layered mm -hmm. structure. They go from 3D 
and as the water leaves the system, it goes down to 2D, concentrates all the material. The water's gone out, so it doesn't support back reactions. And then you find long chain polymers form, and all kinds of things form. You, th- you put a drop of water back, and those trillion vesicles reinfuse, and now they have complex molecular products in them. So you're doing a trillion experiments in, in one shot. That's big numbers, mm-hmm. and that's probably the numbers that you need. And then what you would do is take those reinfused vesicles and flow them through some kind of experimental environment where, and this goes back to Irene Chen's paper about five years ago. If if you could create you know an untold number of vesicles with random contents, this is Freeman Dyson's dirty garbage bags of dirty water idea. Then what you do is you run them through a test. You run them through an environment where they pop or don't pop. That's a form of selection. Mm-hmm. Even though they're not living systems, they're still growing because lipids are still in the environment and they're still growing and they're elongating and they'll they'll butt apart. And in fact, Jack Shostak has recently at, at Harvard or Massachusetts General Hospital where their lab is, they've observed these, these vesicles that have formed getting longer and longer, they're like party balloons that people blow up and make dogs. They will break up all at once in an effect called purling, where there's a a chain of vesicles formed. It's not just one division, it's it's multiple divisions. Mm -hmm. So lipid chemistry rocks in terms of producing containers with contents of different sizes. So I'm convinced that the whole target for... Genesis engines should be the creation of trillions and trillions and trillions of lipid vesicles with different contents. And then what you do is observe those, you know, observe a, a zoo of lipid vesicles, put a certain selection pressure on them, and see which ones come through. So the, you, can, you, can die, you can basically dye them. You can see the, the contents. You can do a mass spec on them, but then you have to destroy them to see what the contents are but they're big enough that with an you know, electron microscope you should be able to 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 characterize them so they're going past the microscope you get a digital image you you find that experiment number 1 billion 500 million such and such is producing a lot of identical sized or almost identically sized vesicles that seem to have similar contents you've got a marker so then you, you start a thousand more of those with slightly different parameters and see if you get even more identically sized ones. And you find out you have a chemical species of vesicle that just forms with these conditions. And that that species, it's not a biological species, it's a chemical structure that persists. And then, then the whole game is, how did they persist? How did they keep growing and divide? And how did they get the same contents on either side of the division? And then you would go back to Freeman's idea of statistical of catalysis happening statistically, which is goes back to Stuart Kaufman's ideas of <laughs> you need an autocatalytic network. Certainly. So then the whole thing just emerges because now you've got a statistically reproducing, you know, contents of the egg. You've got the shell of the egg and the division happening. So now there's two eggs, and you've got statistically the same, you know, similar contents. And if those contents persist long enough and allow the vesicle to keep growing and then divide again, you have a total indicator on, on the way to you know, a chemically alive system. 
So then natural selection has to kick in. And if you have natural selection, those, those chemical contents and the mechanism that, that reproduces them for both sides of the daughter cells um, is, is now being selected for. So the machinery is getting better and better. And that would be the, if, if the Genesis engine showed an eternal bubbles, bubbles that never popped, where you had hundreds of lines of division going on of these, these bubbles, basically, and you, even if you couldn't detect the machinery that was doing it, it would be a major, major breakthrough in science. Because you have, you have allowed a chemical system to evolve before a living, before it became a living system, the machinery to persist a mega molecular structure and through multiple divisions. That's a huge result. So in terms of folk who are currently assembling the chemistry sets to create the chemo grid, this description has a kind of continuum from the chemo grid to Dima's work. But in terms of the folk that are actually looking to start this, in terms of um, putting together the, the, the basic vessels, uh, potentially starting to experiment with dried egg and these kind of things. <laughs> Where, I mean, as a blueprint for them, as a kind of hobbyist blueprint, very similar to the hobbyist robotics community, do you see that there'll be a couple of companies that create their own dried egg plastic vessels that they send off in kits for $25? Or how do you see the, um, the hobbyist element reaching towards this goal? I think the hobbyist should use ordinary... Ordinary test tubes, ordinary cheapo glassware you can sterilize that you can get in any science shop or any, you know, throwaway stuff from high school labs. But think about, if you say you've got a lot of very small test tubes with stoppers in them and you're putting different solutions, think about how you build uh, arrays, grids, shelf systems that do different things that, 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 that will heat one sample and not heat the other that will agitate a sample, where you can put a small piece of mineral in them, because that was the early Earth, it was a mineral and water environment, that then you can somehow automatically look at. The whole thing is automation. Because if, if, if we can't do automation, we'll never get anywhere. I mean, that's one of the problems in Origin of Life research, it's handwork. And they're, they're doing one experiment that takes months or even years to set up, and then they often miss what went on. You know, one of the labs I went to, I said, well, how, you've got all these, you've a tray of test tubes that are, that have been treated differently, and you, you take them out day after day, and you're putting them into this half million dollar microscope, and you're looking by, by your own eye. How do you know you, and they, they said, yeah, we don't know. We could have missed the whole story. (laughs) It could have been happening in this test tube here. 400 times over. 400 times over, we completely missed it. So, there's a huge error rate, uh, and so the the idea is little. Uh, what we built here, you know, here at this house was little camshafts that would tilt tilt our test tube, and you can you can think of how doing that. You don't even need a shelf. You just set the test tube with rubber bands, and the little camshaft push push the test tube so that the solution was against one of the stoppers. The stopcock turned, pulled the sample so you can look at it. Now, ideally, you, 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 what you would do is, of course, look directly into the test tube, but then you've got to have your microscope somehow moving along an assembly line. 
So you either sample out of these hundreds of, of tubes into a common you know, uh, imaging system, or you have to be able to look through into the sample. So either way, what Dave Deemer's team has done is they're moving the samples around around on, on this plate, on this 96-well plate thing. So then you have to decide what it is you're looking for. You know, what, what, part, of the, what part of the experiment are you going to look at? The, this high school science teacher, he's looking for polymerization on hot rocks that dry out. And so in terms of, this is another question, in terms of temperature, in terms of tilt, in terms of light, in terms of a wide variety of factors, what, what would your top four or five list be of variables that people should look to make constant, uh, potentially, and vary one of the variables or potentially vary multiple variables? What do you think the variables are for the hobbyist level chemo grid? There's two things. It's really the, the, the content of the experiment. So the amount of lipid is there, the amount of, you might even put nucleotides of some sort or amino acids, things like that. The, the concentration, uh, salinity matters a lot. pH matters a lot. So, all so if you've bleached it already, you're already in very difficult conditions associated with, with some of these factors. So maybe lighten on the bleach for certain experiments or potentially remove the bleach? You would remove the bleach. You you basically would bleach out your your gear, let it dry, you know, uh, let it dry in a, a, uh, you know, as as close to a, uh, you know, a sanitized environment as you can, not open to the air because there's all kinds of things floating in the Mm -hmm. air. We'll just find their way in. or just washing out with bleach and then washing out with, uh, you know, water that's decontaminated as well. So, because you're going to have enough having water in there anyway. Mm. So then you end up with deciding, and you can titrate in, uh, you could have a, a system by which, you don't have to do this by hand. I mean, you can have, there are automated systems that will titrate in, just, you know, set the pH and set, you know, they're fairly cheap. I mean, high school mm-hmm. uh, groups use this. But then what matters, it may matter that there are mineral surfaces. It's not just, so you decide what rock samples matter. Uh, but also what matters is, is temperature. No temperature. So there's, there's an idea that temperature fluctuation matters because you need reaction energies to make these reactions happen. Otherwise, it won't happen in your lifetime. You know, it's probabilistic. Uh, evaporation could matter mm-hmm. a lot. Um, but also, uh, you know, maybe that agitation matters or it doesn't matter. Stirring. You, know, you could have a magnetic stirrer that goes on every once in a while. Or you could move the sample over top of uh, a piece of mineral and have drying occur. And then, So it's really, there, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of variations on this. And, <laughs> and as a hobbyist, you would decide, you know, I like uh, the idea of simulating the volcanic shoreline. Or I like the idea of the hydrothermal vent. So mine are going to be hot. There's going to be flows, not only past mineral surfaces, but this is the work being done at JPL, where they build analogs to deep hydrothermal vents. And they find that in these vents, the mineral waters almost are going through little worm-like cavities. Mm. That are, and they're, the contention by the JPL crew is, these are perfect RNA making machines that are under that are at these hydrothermal vents. So you could say, I'm going to do that, but I'll do it with, you know, a little hose, almost like a heat exchanger that you're going to build, and see that 
by the end of the heat exchanger you've got a concentrated RNA. So you, you could, what, what the, the approach of the Genesis engine or the chemo grid is, is that a lot of independent experiments could be done and then combined. So if you, if you were an RNA generating, long chain RNA generating system, you would then attach that to somebody who's doing lipid chemistry at the shoreline and say, let's have the outputs from both combine. So now the RNA is appearing in a wet drying cycle. And that would be an analogous to a shoreline, you know, like a black smoker, like a, a, a geothermal vent totally. that's at the shore that is spewing out RNA product. There's wave action going over it and hitting the shoreline, and those waves are full of lipids. And all this slurry is on the shoreline, and it's now wet drying. And you might find that, you know, what, what chemists call amplification that this amplifies, uh, vastly amplifies the formation of these polymers, important polymers, inside of, of containers. And you would, you would be able to write a paper in a major journal that would say, hey, if you just combine these two relatively simple techniques, analogs, to, to the real world, you get vast amplification of this. So is this plausible in nature? Probably. You know, here are the, here's the environments, the two environments we're combining, so it's a collaboration. Then you might find, you know, thousand Enmer RNA chains that could become replicases inside vesicles. That's, that's non-trivial. And most of these labs out there usually only do one experiment. They don't try to combine and make whole complex environments. Yes. And then the addition of mineral where they're drying, then you swap out the mineral surfaces and say, well, volcanic... What about clays? You know, how do clays encourage? And, we, you know, there's a lot of theory behind how clay encourages uh, the formation of short-chain organic molecules. So somebody swaps clay out in their chemo grid, and then they amplify it even more. Um, it's a tremendous... I mean, the, these things will take years, but what, what you can do is if your chemo grid has generated this really cool result... It's, it's publishing its results always to the net. Somebody else could take those results and automatically run their chemo-grade apparatus in their basement, take your experiment further, which was always the dream with artificial life, that you'd build a common... Yes, it's a non-trivial problem, though, and I think that there's a podcast in and of that problem. In fact, we've recorded a couple previously associated with artificial life. But in terms of time, I did want to get to the book, and I know we can expand all of this in, in greater detail with future conversations. But the book, specifically as it is now, for folks listening in, can you introduce what this new book is and what it's what it's going to achieve? Well, the I, in, in sense writing the PhD dissertation, which is sitting right next to Tom here, um, I I was depressed on the park bench, had this insight about using chemicals to simulate themselves roared off to Dublin, defended the PhD, not feeling as though it was a complete failure, because the, the higher goal was there. The, the PhD material worked, and we found this magic novelty, you know, enhancing mm. technique, uh, accelerating technique. So then, a week after that, I, uh, after defending the PhD, and it might have been a day or two after that, I wrote to Joseph Seckbach, and said, I think there's enough here for a book. And it's not only a book, but it's an attempt to frame a new field 
or subfield, an approach to origin of life that hasn't been taken yet, which is massive scale industrialization of these experiments. We're not going to get anywhere unless we can massively scale up the system with, with the best computing, with the best knowledge of how to run experiments and how to hill climb and, and how to sample and how to use basically genetic algorithms to drive the, uh, the hill climb faster and faster to use the best teleological uh, concepts, the, the best design from the human mind of what, where we want to end up, and then the best chemistry that we can that's automated. And so I said that I, it's, this title has popped into my head. This is a chemo grid, but the, the variation, variation of this is uh, for a nice popular name would be Genesis Engines, an engine designed to get to a biogenesis. <laughs> or a second abiogenesis on the earth. And I started putting out the word uh, to people who'd been involved with the Evo Grid, and then neighbors, friends and neighbors, yourself. <laughs> and we recruited, we have about 18 authors recruit. I still need another 10 authors. Gosh. So, <laughs> and five, six chapters have come in. Now, the early deadline was uh, the 31st of of, the, of of July, six chapters have come in. Dave's draft chapter came in this morning. Mm -hmm. And it's fantastic work. Uh, so what we've got, in order to figure out this highly multidisciplinary approach to origin of life, we've got, you know, complexity theorists. We've got Stuart Kaufman writing a, a, a chapter on how he thinks uh, novelty occurs in the universe, another another method that is relevant to building machines like this. We've got biochemists, you know, good good biochemists writing on this. Uh, experimentalists who have approaches of how to build uh, chemo grids, uh, people who do microfluidics for a living, <laughs> and robotically control chemistry. Mm -hmm. We have a philosopher uh, who's, who's written about the moral status of, of what comes out of these machines, <laughs> a, a public policy person, mm -hmm. and a, a wonderful writer, uh, Robert Pollock from Columbia, who's already contributed the first of two, what I'm hoping will be two uh, prefaces, mm. and it's basically, why do we do this? Why mm -hmm. are we doing, why are we trying this beautifully, beautiful, beautiful preface that he's already written? So there's an interesting question associated with why we do this, and I think certainly, having come from the Artificial Life Conference, there was a group of folk who remain unnamed who had gone through the original protocell circumstance, particularly associated with startups and these kind of things. And I did have the opportunity to meet Steen uh, mm. at the conference, which was wonderful as well. He's kind of carrying the, the flag on the through flag. the choppy waters of, 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 uh, of artificial life specifically. But there's certainly a group... Um, I don't know how I would characterise it, that have gone through the early protocell stuff, that see this very, very long-term mm. and kind of slow iterations at best. How do you avoid this being something that becomes like uh, virtual reality, or as we've discussed previously, avatars, mm -hmm. where there's a huge upspike, thanks to folks such as Dima and, and others, and then, you know, the buoyancy of, of actual deliverables is not necessarily seen. And then there's a downward progression. I mean, we've, we've talked about this associated with the winters that come through these things. What do you see will buoy on this origin of life, this Genesis engine, through potentially initially choppy waters? This is because 
uh, and I would say the groups that are failing are the groups that really don't know the code they're writing, which is its chemistry code. And I can give you an, 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 and they're not using the latest languages and techniques. So, you know, not trying to, to toot Dave Deemer's horn, but what they're doing, I mean, Dave Deemer, the techniques that they're using are so cutting edge and they're so code chemistry. Here's one. Uh, 19, late 1980s, uh, Dave is in his lab and they notice that a piece of DNA next to a membrane has somehow gotten itself through a micropore in the membrane. But it's gone all the way through. And you're talking, you know, millions of base pairs have mm. gone through. It's, it was on this side of the membrane, now it's on that side of the membrane. You know, write that up and say, this is pretty unusual. You know, no one's ever seen this in the lab. How did this mechanism work? Well, there were two or three, four citations in the first few years. Now there's like 25,000 citations. A whole company was formed called Oxford Nanopore. <laughs> Millions of investment because it turns out this is a discovery that's profound. You can do individual molecular counting using a micropore through a lipid bilayer, a specially designed micropore that where literally things are moving and they're clicking mm -hmm. physically mm -hmm. as it's as it's measuring. So uh, in April there was a conference in Florida that, that Dave was at because of course Dave's on the board of this company, mm -hmm. the advisor, and a guy held a box up and he said this will sequence the human genome in you know hours mm -hmm. when we launch this thing so it's a it's it's a it's a technique that is profoundly important there's another group doing x-ray technique direct x-ray on 2d structures and being able to measure the chemical contents without dyes without doing mass spec and destroying the sample they can actually just basically bounce x-rays off mm -hmm. this stuff and tell you exactly what's there. So you put all this together, the individual counting, the wet drying cycles, uh, the automation through well plate technology. This is the kind of, of oomph you need to do this kind of work. You, you need all the latest techniques, the best languages, the best thinkers. And if you don't have those, you can't write the code. So there's an interesting, and this is part of my chapter that I'm contributing to the book, there's an interesting open source analogy here. The, the companies, and certainly this was my observation, and the, clearly there's historical legacy and, and human emotion invested in this as well, but the companies that have been able to look out and been able to say, this component is something that is a breakaway, and the researchers as well, I mean, this is the example of Dima, but let this go off and live in its home, versus the completely closed companies it's an interesting metaphor that basically uh, this part of my chapter associated with what artificial life can teach this emerging aspects of engineering and aspects of open source but what you're describing is fundamentally open source it's fundamentally open source and um there's a huge economic driver behind this certainly so the economic it's like the game industry drove 3d chipsets which led to the boom of a lot of other things so the instead of operating in a vacuum doing your artificial life work or doing your origin of life work as a side thing, which a lot of Nobelists do. Mm -hmm. You know, they have an origin of life because they can, they have their reputation already and <laughs> they can do these funny little things that don't have much commercial value. What, what Dave has done and what the, the Genesis Engines thing is, you can, go to a, you can go to a pharma and you can say, you know, Genesis Engines are designed to do the, the 
search through chemical space to a very complex pre-life structure that has behaviors. Can you imagine what you could do with this to generate, to do drug design? So my hypothesis that I put out there, particularly from the early interaction with a fellow from Lilly in, in the BioLive, uh, actually, is that probably, and I know you have some ins into, into pharmaceutical companies as well, there are these early elements that are existing, are maybe more advanced than we know, but because of the closed nature of the way that this is done, the lazing that you get in open source, the rich interaction, mm-hmm. is lacking in these areas. If, if these people can be coaxed out, if this work can be coaxed out, I think it would be very interesting and clearly contributed. And the, book, the book will do that, <laughs> because in the commercial application section that somehow gets written, I mean, you... If you can build if you can build a piece of machinery that can guide a complexification vector through chemical space, you can you can produce any molecular structure. You can set a teleological end goal of saying we need something that has um, you know this chemical structure because we know it can act this way on a virus or it can move through this kind of a cellular membrane and it's a lock and key. But we don't know the pathway by which to build the industrial uh, chemistry to make this thing. We we have it. We see it in nature. We we can so a, a Genesis engine can show you pathways to manufacture chemical things okay. in efficient ways, higher and higher efficient ways. Because you you basically are going to say, okay, that was a you know fifteen hundred step process, and we've got the molecule. We don't have it in big enough yield. And then you can work on optimizing those 1,500 steps. Optimizing steps, and it's automated. And so now you can can design not only the the molecule, you can design the manufacturing process to be optimal and higher and higher yields. And so you can go, you can take the same, you can piggyback on that kind of thing. When when the the farm industry and the other industries see this is the approach, you'll get all the funding, you'll get the spin-off of being able to use generative computing systems to uh, use it in origin of life work and so it's just a matter of it's a matter of putting putting that whole thing together getting program managers involved mm-hmm. we're talking NIH mm-hmm. going to Glaxo running it past I have friends at Glaxo are senior researchers mm-hmm. and do a talk there and say this is the approach these systems done professionally are going to you know they're going to be 10 million dollar Systems and seeing if investment. It's, oh, this is this is a revolution in what we do. This and they probably have they probably have some of the pieces there already. They probably have, and some that's of the it. interesting thing. Yeah. The, the human genome project is part of certainly. Of this. Yeah, is the barriers for entry are probably relatively small. So let's talk about the book as a thing. In terms of your need for an additional, I know I know Setback in particular has a legacy of these super books. But do you see this more in a potentially in a, in a series and in terms of getting the additional 10 authors with the view that you already have stuff coming in, mm-hmm. do you think it can be split up into a smaller book or is the requirement that it has to have 25 it, plus I authors? I think it always, for that series, we're, <laughs> we're, we're locked into, you know, that. And in, in a sense, this is, this is my out-of-town tryout. This is getting a book about this out, but as... It matures a book, a standalone book that's not part of a series would come out. So this is this is the book that's the fishing expedition <laughs> of who who has something to say. What are the basic themes? 
you know, it's fairly easy. I mean, it's not a, a book that you have to sell a certain number of. It's so, not an MIT Press book. Yeah. It's not a... So this is this is the putting it together for the first time. And I guess, I mean, I've been involved with half a dozen or so of these Sekpak Gordon et al. books, mm-hmm. Swan, etc. I guess my broader interest in them is I, I really love thumbing through them once they come out. You need to form a community which is secondary to these books, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess my frustration, although I have gotten some correspondence from writing in, in previous of these Sekpak Springer books is that there isn't more into collaboration. How do you think your book might be different in terms of actually motivating the authors the, into collaborating? What what you do at that point, so this is all aimed at the ISIL meeting in Japan in 2014. So in Nara, Japan, they're having International Society of Origin of Life uh, next conference, which is like the origins <laughs> was in Montpellier. They're only every uh, three years. So what I'm aiming at, and Dave is, you know, involved with ISIL, is a number of these authors who enjoy writing for the book think it's innovative, you know, it's revolutionary, innovative. Let's have a panel. You know, let's start this thing out as a community. Let's mm-hmm. let's do a panel and discuss or or a, or a track on doing uh, chemo grid genesis and just automating the search for the quest for the origin of life, and get that done at that conference. People recognize each other. Dave shows his system for master biology. There's somebody else who shows their system. And they realize in their heads, we're dealing with a common approach here. Um, Do we have our own symposium? Mm -hmm. Do we, you know, submit more papers together and call it such and such? Mm -hmm. Because we're going to do it anyway. And I've done this three, four times before. I did it with avatars. Certainly. Without question. It was all... Finding people who already were working on something, they identify that, yes, you're working on that too, and here's a name for it. And So this area, the area that we live in, has a small degree of luxury, and we're soon to welcome Larry Yeager back mm-hmm. into the area. In terms of folk who are writing in the book who also live in this area, I mean, there are three of us that you've mentioned mm-hmm. so far. So are the more... There need I need to actually pluck a few more from this area. I'm sort of... I have two or three more authors on doc mm-hmm. to try to get. I went to see Freeman, and he's really interested in the book, but he doesn't want to commit to any. No, I think yes, time. that is yes. But um, I'm hoping that he would potentially review the book, which would be wonderful. So, in terms of just the local community, it would be wonderful, and I think you're probably the equidistant location for the three of us. Mm-mm. It would be wonderful to be able to get together, maybe record some audio or just have a, yeah. a casual conversation, good, maybe good even meet point. in Santa Cruz. Um, because certainly my sense of this book is very much in isolation, mm. but I'm certainly absolutely fascinated by the stuff that uh, the demon and others are doing in this area. And I think the idea of collaboration should be more than just a book framing. Mm-hmm. I think basically particularly in terms of, um, as you've described, Dima's insights in, in engineering fundamentally in this new field is certainly something that I'm very receptive to and, and I'm in, writing on in my chapter as well. In fact, one opportunity is the NASA Astrobiology Center meetings, which are about every couple of months, mm-hmm. and those have great presentations, Andrew Pohoreel, anybody working in astrobiology and they're in Origin of Life. So that that that's one place. It's sort of like the gray thumb of <laughs> of uh, origin. But you're absolutely right. If there was some kind of, 
And the DIY bio community, uh, I put out a call on their list, you know, do-it-yourself bio. There's John Cumbers over at, at, at Ames of the BioBricks people. Yeah, I would certainly consider him as one of the people who would be ideally suited if we could get a small group together yeah, to, to have a jamming session. And it's almost like if we attached it to the DIY bio meetings, the meetups that they're having already, and have Dave come and do a presentation at one of them and, and just say, can we form a DIY you know, origin of life, DIY bio slash mm-hmm. origin of life slash chemo grid and get some of the thinking started. I've been just overwhelmed. Certainly. Uh, as usual. <laughs> so for the benefits of folks listening in, um, my wife and I had the amazing opportunity of going through some of Bruce's archives. I'd seen the Digibone previously, but this kind of edge of biota, but the Timothy Leary archive. <laughs> this is a guy who had collected together... He had artificial life books that I had never seen previously, including a Japanese one that I'm going to have to track down. Clearly, and it really, it was a beautiful full circle because I'd heard previously, I think through you and potentially others, that Timothy Leary did have some early interests in artificial life, and I've seen that represented now in his library. Mm-hmm. But in uh, also, we talked a little bit about my time with Roy Plotnick as a, another person, completely different field, but who reaches out and has, has picked up a good portion of the artificial life community as well. But in terms of what you'd like to see from the artificial life community with the view that there are so many folk that are in so many interesting areas coming together, potentially contributing to this book, potentially just mm. being a sounding board. Yeah. What's your sense of the community and how it can integrate into this? I think that my, my plea for the community is think outside of the box because and literally outside of the, the computer box, mm-hmm. because if you start to study how uh, life works and how complex it is, and the, the vast size of machinery that it is, and you realize that everything we're doing in artificial life in silicon is a toy. It's a complete toy. It's such a toy that it may not really have any relevance to oh, Well, that's biology. an interesting... I mean, I think that's an interesting point, because even within toys, you can create microcosms, which, and when you look at what biologists do particularly a potential aversion to complexity in a lot of their experimentation. A lot of what the hard science is in this area as well could also be described as being a toy yeah. in terms of simplification. They try to exactly. Yeah. So it is it is a difficult inclusion in some regard, but I think my sense of coming from the artificial life conference and spending time with academics is that we all need to embrace complexity in whatever form. An area that you haven't touched on, but something that I think is really critical here and potentially resonates is the hard artificial life community. Not only hobbyist robotics and these kind of elements, mm. but you're describing things like Arduinos, things that basically the hard artificial life slash robotics slash hobbyist robotics community is already a part of. Clearly they can contribute a lot here as well. They can. Can you talk a little bit on that? I think the grand unification of all of this is saying, let's take a non-trivial, high-performance computing environment called chemicals. Let's take the best robotics, the best hard artificial life that we've got, you know, which is high-performance, parallel system modeling, multi-core modeling, vision systems you know, edge detection, whatever, you know, you, you, the best robotics and combine them with the best design, the best human design of complex experiments, of complexifying experiments and create a single 
universe, a single system that can deliver. Because then in each, each component is doing a job appropriate to its abilities. The human mind's designing the overall thing. The chemicals are the non-trivial. They're nature. You're literally computing with nature. They do nature. You know, they've always done nature. They can do it in real time. <laughs> yes. And then the best vision, the, the computers are really good at search and selection. They're lousy at simulation. They're great at search and selection. They're lousy at parallelism, parallelism and, and all this non-determinism. Well, historically, please. Historically. <laughs> well, one of the things I did in, in part of the EvoGrid for the PhD is I went to the Institute for Advanced Study, and they brought out all the archives. They brought out von Neumann's. Mm-hmm. They brought out Oppenheimer's director's files for the EC, ECP, the Electronic Computer Project, which is John von Neumann's mm-hmm. computer at Princeton at, at the Institute. And I went through everything and decided, discovered all these letters about, you know, we're building a contingent architecture. We're building something just so that we don't have to set up patch cords for 30 days to run a 15-minute calculation. We're building something that will just will be reliable and will work, but it's not the end-all and be-all architecture. It's a certainly. contingent, and of course, it is the architecture we're still with to a certain extent. Per- I mean, I think I think what has happened in terms of multi-core processes and a lot of the optimization that's gone through that mm-hmm. has changed some of that groundwork. But and it's, certainly- it's still a primary and secondary cache, a stream of instructions being yes. whether or not it's a pipeline or not. Well, true, true. It, 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 it's certainly, it's, its lineage is well noted. It's well noted. So the, the thing was, my, my contention was that, that computers are so far, they're so far separated from how nature works that we can't shoehorn nature into them. Therefore, we have to marry them with nature. But we don't know how nature works fundamentally. But I mean, we, we can make assertions about how nature... But we know that it's, you know, it's non-deterministic, it's stochastic, it's mostly dissipative, mostly nothing happens mm-hmm. most of the time. So Certainly. it's a huge amount. It's in, you know, ent- we know how entropy works. You know, So, and all of those things are super hard to simulate in, in silicon. They're super hard to do. And, and because people get bored because nothing's happening for the longest time. But Mary, nature, this is why I think robotics are such a huge area for learning, because it's real nature married with computing systems that are parallel models. In, in, at NASA, for years, you know, we did the, the simulation of robots, of rovers going down slopes, craters on the moon and things like that. And initially, the, it was just rigid body dynamics. And then it became more soil compression mm-hmm. dynamics. But it took 10 years to get to the point where we could actually get a realistic movement and slippage of uh, virtual uh, wheels, kind of like Curiosity mm-hmm. will do when it's going down mm-hmm. the slope. And it took 10 years to get there. And it struck me at that time that build a physical r- robot out of metal, put it in a sandbox, wire it up with a zillion sensors, and have a parallel virtual model going certainly and then your parallel virtual rover can calibrate with the real one based on nature and you can develop really rocking incredibly effective models that you could use to drive on the moon mm-hmm. so that's what that was the genesis of the idea of doing this of always put a piece of have nature in your system as your primary processor your primary core mm-hmm. is nature and then 
cluster you know, robotics and computing and artificial life models and GAs around it and you will create something absolutely new that, that can really go to frontiers. It's not going to be self-limiting because it's you're trying to keep up with the chemistry or you're trying to keep up with the, the movement of a wheel through you, because there's, that's the richest uh, computing environment and you're trying to harness that computing environment and work with it and it will pull you a lot farther a lot faster. And Mark Bedeau's whole 10 points about the future of artificial life, he points this out, that, that uh, you need to do hybrid systems, that you will learn so much more. It's like the, 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 the grand challenge, the DARPA grand challenge. They did that because they realized robotics are going nowhere in 30 years. Let's put these cars on, the, on rough track roads mm-hmm. you know, with no one else driving on them and and, and robotics move, and vision systems and edge detection systems and hazard avoidance systems move, evolve so fast in the, four, in the two or three grand challenges because the embarrassment of running a three-ton you know, Hummer yes. off the highway and hitting a bridge abutment, those teams actually got down to work because they had to deal with nature. Certainly. So I think this is an opportunity for the artificial life community to grapple with real nature so this is science and engineering fundamentally. Science and engineering. Yes. And and then you're you're not only it creates relevance for the artificial life community because if you're a complexity scientist, you know you, you may be a, not not have a lot of work uh, because that has sort of come and gone the complexity theory and that kind of thing. But if you're a complexity scientist who can build ex- things that can do broadband long long procedure. Uh, chemical experiment pathways because you work on the system you'll have you know you'll be uh, they'll have suitors you know lining up at your front door because Certainly. and funding because you're now dealing with nature you're now using your skills to help uh, a natural process and you know in the case of you know drug they talk about drug discovery this is this isn't just drug design I mean if you can build systems like it's not just drug design it's the design of the industrial process to make the drugs. And that's the, the step that's the hardest on the manufacturing. Certainly. And, you know, and, and if we solve the origin of life along the way, then it's, you know, it's a major, it's a triumph. It would be a triumphal merger of the, of the artificial life community and the theoreticians like, like Kaufman and the, the great bench chemist workers like a Dave Deemer, mm-hmm. all working together would be the greatest triumph that you not only you build a, a system that is the most complex hybrid computing natural system ever built, but not only it can show you how the pathway to life was, but it can also rev, it will revolutionize all, all manufacturing in, in the 21st century. Well, Bruce, you've given the vision once again. <laughs> now, there are, now many of us have to scurry away and, and start the work, but it's always a pleasure chatting with you, and I look forward to, to talking with you maybe when the book's closer to coming out and potentially uh, other stops along the way. So thank you very much thank for the you, chance Tom. to chat it's with you. Thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure.